0: You're listening to Real Atheology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. Welcome to Relay Theology. Uh, my name is Justin, and uh, my guest today is Dr. Dustin Crummit. Uh, Dr. Dustin Crummit received his PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 2018 and specializes in social and political philosophy. Um, ethics and the intersection of philosophy and religion in these, in these two fields. Um, he currently teaches philosophy at the university of Washington Tacoma and is the executive director of a new nonprofit. First things first, what led you into an interest in philosophy?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think I was always sort of interested in philosophical questions. Um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't really until I got to college and took a philosophy class that I understood that this was like a, a career path. Right. Um, so I, I I sort of went to college with this vague idea that maybe I would be like a novelist or something and write sort of uh, philosophical fiction or something. And then once I realized that you don't you don't actually have to do that. You can just write philosophy, and that's that's like a, a job that people still have. Um, <laughs> right that seemed that seemed pretty natural to me um i i guess yeah i mean i've always been interested in questions about politics and ethics and also about religion um so uh you know part of part of my interest in philosophy was becoming interested in questions that are related to philosophy of religion and and wanting to figure out mm, the okay. So, I think you're maybe going to answer ask a question that's uh, relevant to that in a, in a minute.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. So that was exactly what my next question was: is, is why philosophy of religion in particular? Um, yeah. Sounds like you just were had a general interest in those questions all along.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in general, the yeah the the areas that I've worked in are areas that I think are important. Uh, you know, ethics, political mm-hmm. philosophy, philosophy of religion, all very. Practically important, existentially important, whatever, um, and also areas that I think are, are intellectually interesting. Philosophy of religion has, um, you know, there's a bunch of different stuff that that bears on it. There are a lot of different approaches, different topics you can discuss under the the banner of philosophy of religion, um, and uh, you know, we'll we'll talk about some of some of the papers I've written, taking kind of unconventional approaches or thinking about things that people don't normally think about, or that sort of stuff. But
0: yeah, well, so. Um you are a christian and um i guess were you raised christian or was was this something that you kind of came to through thinking about these things philosophically or was thinking about them kind of just an outgrowth of your curious personality and you were a christian already and so you wanted to kind of develop your worldview in a more
1: Yeah. yeah i guess i would say um i yeah i was raised christian and sort of uh a conservative evangelical environment that's that's quite different from where I am now um and uh you know over time you start wondering like is this stuff true um I I remember actually I I think maybe the birth of my interest in philosophy of religion was um I, I had heard some like radio program with some atheist guy who was like a guest. And then, you know, later on, I was walking down the street at Disney world. We were on vacation and I thought like, what if that guy's right? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, suddenly, suddenly became uh, very interested in this. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, I, I was in an environment where people couldn't really answer the sorts of questions that I had, I think. Um, and, um. So I, I read uh, I, I remember I got the case for Christ from the church library the least credible mm. book that, that was not convincing to me at all
0: my first uh, philosophy of religion book too <laughs> oh
1: yeah yeah if it counts um, as such yeah that yeah that didn't do anything for me um, <laughs> I read some C.S. Lewis and that sort of convinced me for a little bit but then over mm. time I started to think okay there are some problems with his with his arguments I was also reading lots of like online atheist stuff blogs you know people passing along new atheist arguments that sort of stuff um Mm -hmm. and you know some of that seemed convincing to me at the time so you know i i didn't really know what to think um and i i i came to a i came to a point where like You know, I was very uncertain. I thought of myself maybe as a kind of like borderline agnostic fideist or something. Um, And then in college, I as I studied philosophy of religion, often just on my own, just reading stuff, um, I I came to think like, okay, a lot of the, the sort of online atheist argumentation I've been exposed to is actually pretty bad. Um, there's more sophisticated mm. philosophical work, but the stuff that had been bothering you sure. before was was really not very convincing. Um, and I came to think that there were actually like some pretty good natural theological arguments, um, and that sort of set yeah. me on on the course of yeah I'm studying these things and of thinking what I think right now. Um, so uh, I, I guess it's sort of you know there's kind of a common a common story of like somebody taking philosophy classes and losing their religious belief or something. Um, for me, it might almost be the inverse. It might be that I, I would have lost it had I not started studying philosophy and thought, like actually, the, the way that I was thinking about things previously was not was not the right way to go about it.
0: Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, some of your first papers, you note a recent increase in explorations of like animal suffering. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why that tends to be the case as of recent like why are treatments of animal suffering why that's a relatively new trend i guess in philosophy of religion
1: yeah i mean i guess it's maybe it's it's easy to explain maybe why it didn't used to be a big trend just because people are you know, philosophy is written by human beings and humans are sorry my cat is <laughs> animal suffering, she's
0: protesting sure. yeah um
1: yeah um but uh yeah, I mean why why is it changed? I think it's partly recognition of the fact that like you really do have to deal with some some problems that are specific to questions about animals um in order to come at the issue in a way that's going to be adequate. So like uh you know, once you realize like most of the suffering in the world is animal suffering by far mm-hmm. probably. Um and you know, uh, a, a lot of the theodicies you might employ with regard to human beings doesn't don't look like they really apply very easily to animals. We know now that animal suffering was going on for like way, way, way long before there were any human beings. So, um, you know those those sorts of um, those sorts of things raise like philosophical challenges where you really do have to talk about animal suffering in order to talk about the problem of evil in a meaningful way. It's not it's not an accident that William Rowe and his paper focuses on the fawn, right? Because the fawn mm-hmm. raises questions that you know some right. Um, and then I think it's probably also I mean this is accompanied by. Um, a big increase in philosophical animal ethics that's that's the past couple decades since the the publication of singer's book animal liberation and and um tom reagan's uh book um and you know also kind of a a broader societal interest in animal ethics with the rise of the animal rights movement and animal welfare movements and that sort of stuff um so i don't think that's an accident i think those probably have some sort of common cause um, what is the common cause? I mean, part of it honestly is, is a reaction to the fact that like we in our society um, like do the most horrific things to animals that have ever been done more or less with, with factory farming, which is kind of a, of, a, of a scale and like obvious indefensibility that like is almost unprecedented in history. Um, and so part of the concern for animals is I think reaction to that like wow this is so bad um and then maybe part of it is also philosophers sometimes talk about this general project of moral circle expansion like people over time you realize you like you expand your moral circle in the sense that you start out caring about you know the people in your clan and then you think well maybe the people in my nation people okay people outside of my race outside of my country outside of my religion you know you you extend moral concern over time and then um at some point you come to realize that like, well, animals have interests of their own and, you know, their suffering matters. And so, um, yeah, I, I think the general, the general turn towards greater interest in animals is probably partly reaction towards atrocities we're committing against animals, probably partly this general, um, this general moral circle expansion project. And that's probably got to be part of why, the increased interest in, in animals and philosophy of religion too there's, there's going to be some sort of sociological
0: right right yeah i would agree um so with regard to the increased treatment of animal suffering within philosophy of religion you have a lot of um those treatments kind of dealing with higher animals um right. so like mammals for example um however you don't really stop there you kind of want to ask further questions in the paper titled, uh, The Problem of Evil and the Suffering of Creeping Things, you explore the idea of possible suffering of insects. Uh, you consider the premise that a reasonably large uh, portion of creeping things can actually suffer. Um, I guess, what do you mean by creeping things here?
1: Oh, uh, I, by creeping things, I, I kind of meant um, like insects and things that are like relevantly similar. Um, so it, it's kind of a gerrymander category, you know, not necessarily tracking any specific scientific classification. Sure. Sure. Um, I, I, at one point I suggest, like mostly what I'm talking about are arthropods. So those mm. are insects, but also spiders and mites and millipedes and crustaceans uh, you know, this, this bigger family of, of things that might be relevantly similar. So that's, that's sort of what I meant okay. by, by creeping things. And
0: with regard to the potential for them, their capacities, uh, to suffer. I, what do you mean by that, that you're trying to address? Yeah.
1: Yeah. so what, what I say in the paper is, um, by suffer. I mean, sometimes by suffering people mean like psychological anguish, you know, they mean something very specific, right. I mean, something very non-specific. Uh, I just mean like things that are, are bad for them can happen. Things that like lower their welfare. And it's, it's not just, I mean, there's some sense in which, you know, using a knife against a hard surface is bad for the knife because it dulls it, right? But it, it's not that—that's not the same sense in which being tortured is bad for me. Um, that's sort of right. this purely functional sense that applies to artifacts or something. Um, and and so the the question is like the sort of the sort of well-being that like actually grounds rational concern for that individual. We have that, and the cat has that, and so forth um rocks don't have that knives don't have that plants i think don't have that um the question is do do insects and other things do they like possess that sort of well-being and can their well-being be harmed um that's that's what i'm i'm talking about when i talk about suffering so there are different theories about what that amounts to right so there are hedonists who think well-being consists in valence subjective experience like pleasure is good for you pain is bad for you um there are desire theorists who think it has to do with desire satisfaction getting what you want is good for you Uh, having your desires frustrated is bad for you there are objective list theorists or hybrid theorists who think it's some combination maybe pain is bad for you but so is having your achievements frustrated so is being betrayed you know pleasure is good for you but so is friendship achievement whatever um i i myself am um I am drawn towards some kind of objective list or hybrid view, Um, but I'm I'm inclined to think that uh, to be a subject of well-being of the sort that we have in mind here, the the kind that is like things are really better or worse for you in the sense that can ground moral concern, um, I'm inclined to think that that requires the capacity for conscious experience. And if I'm right about that, what it will come down to is do insects and other creatures have the capacity for conscious experience.
0: Right. Um, so do you think there's any good reason to think that they do or are there good reasons to think that they don't? Um, no. How do you kind of see the reasons weighing up? I know that you don't really take like, a hard stance on it in the paper, yeah. but...
1: Um, I Yeah, I don't take a stance on it in the paper. I, I think now um rethink priorities this organization that I'm I'm working for now in a way um they've actually published some research on this that people can find online um I I having read some of that and some other stuff I mean I'm I'm now I'm now inclined to think that like yeah some insects I'm pretty convinced are are conscious um I I think there's pretty convincing evidence in the case of say like bees or fruit flies or black soldier flies um And there are different ways of going about trying to answer this question. Um, I think what convinces me is just the fact that it seems like they display the kind of behavior that is caused by consciousness in us and that you think like if consciousness serves any kind of biological function, it's to produce this sort of behavior, Um, you know, behavior that is not just reflexive or pre-programmed, but that is flexible is sensitive to motivational trade-offs, you know, do I go for the food even though there's some source of danger and like they can respond in ways that kind of make sense given the relative values involved. Um, things that display a learning, in some cases like rudimentary tool use. People might have seen the video of the, the bees playing with little balls. Uh, you can train them to like push a ball into a hole. Um, yeah, and, and they can then teach other bees to do that. Um, that they, they can like, watch another, yeah. You know. So I mean, re- really very sophisticated stuff. Um, and so, Mike Michael Ty, the philosopher of mind, has a book called um, "Tense Bees and Shocked Crabs," where he he talks about some of this stuff as well. Um, so, people could look that up if they want. But yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to think some some bee, some insects probably do. Um, there are other approaches, you know, looking at neuroanatomical stuff, like well, they they do have parts of their brains that are responsible for like integrating sensory information. Maybe that is what grounds consciousness in us. Um, there are arguments people give to the contrary. Um, one form of argument is a kind of neuroanatomical argument that says like, well, uh, you know, consciousness in us seems to be associated with the cortex. They don't have a cortex. So like mm-hmm. probably they're not conscious. People use the same argument to argue that fish are, don't don't feel anything, which is hard for me to believe. Um, I, I'm not very convinced As a pescatarian,
0: of I have very good, I have very good, uh, motivating reasons to believe uh, that at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I don't know if you have good, uh, epistemic <laughs> reasons, unfortunately. Um, but pescatarianism actually, this is off topic. Pescatarianism actually is, um, I wouldn't recommend it really because it, yeah, I think fish can probably feel pain and it, it actually kills quite a lot of fish because fish get fed to other fish. So like the one that you eat is, but anyway, Well, you're ruining my
0: day. So yeah, yeah, fish
1: and and chicken and eggs might be some of the worst things to eat actually from an animal. But, but anyway um, uh, you know, the, the thing is first of all, like, there's there might be some evidence that some humans without a cortex are conscious, some anencephalic infants. This is controversial, but um, it might be that there's like a degree of neural plasticity where if the cortex doesn't develop, other things can take over. Um, and you might think, well, okay, if humans can be conscious without a cortex, maybe other animals can. But also, we just we know that insects can. Get, I mean, their brains are just different. You know, they don't have a visual cortex, but they can still see, right? So. Um, there there's some reason to think you know maybe this is handled in the cortex for us but not not for them you know so i I don't think that's a very strong argument um there are also you know there are also behavioral arguments where like insects are are damaged but um they they you know it, it looks like they just keep doing what they were doing they don't respond to the injury and so you think well they must not feel anything right um I, I talked to an entomologist about this. I mean, one one theory is it, it could be, you know, so there's like sharp stabbing pain when you are injured and then there's like the lingering pain from an injury. Like there's the thing that gets you to like immediately stop doing the thing and not do it again. And then there's, uh, you know, like the lingering pain that causes you to like tend the wound and, you know, not put any weight on your ankle and that sort of thing. Um, And those are mediated by different neurological processes, if I remember correctly. Um, One theory is, well, maybe insects have the sharp stabbing pain, but not the lingering pain. And that's why they don't respond in the way you'd expect when they're injured. Um, But the entomologist I talked to, she said, no, that's not right. Because actually, sometimes they, first of all, like, just sometimes animals don't respond in the way that you'd expect when, you know, cats can hide pain very well, for instance. So like, it's hard to interpret that. And Sometimes she said they actually do display the kinds of behaviors you would expect. So it, it just depends a lot on like the species and where exactly they're injured. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, I mean, they're very different from us. So like that's a reason for agnosticism, right? Just hard to know, but, uh, and I'm, I'm not convinced for all of them, but um, I, I do think we have decent evidence in some in some cases that, that yeah, is, is pretty convincing. Sure, to me.
0: yeah. Well, I mean you know back to the philosophy of religion stuff, this is gonna have some kind of import on like the problem of evil yeah. um and you you write about this, you write that this kind of makes the problem of evil uh an even harder problem in like three three important ways um could yeah. you kind of discuss um what you uh what you're referring to there
1: yeah, yeah, so one one is just uh like the the amount of evil in the world will be increased a whole lot it looks like um at least the amount of suffering in the world will be increased a whole lot uh if if they can suffer again it depends on how many can suffer and you know at what stage in life blah 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 but sure um there are just so many uh you know quintillions of insects in the world Um tens of thousands or maybe yeah well no but more than uh I I think maybe like hundreds of millions of times as many of them as as us or something, I I might be getting the order of magnitude wrong, but, um, just way, way more of them than us, way, way more of them than all vertebrates, um, uh, by many, many orders of magnitude. Um, and so like, there's so many of them that there's going to be a lot more suffering. Second of all, um, it's, it's somewhat plausible that like their lives might, contain a a worse proportion of evil to good uh than ours um for one thing they so like broadly speaking i mean it's a little more complicated than this really but the traditional thought is like there are organisms that case select and there are organisms that are select and organisms that k select are like us so you you have a number of offspring that like roughly matches the carrying capacity of the environment you have a small number of offspring and you try to keep them alive whereas the other the other uh, strategy our selection is you just have as many as possible and most of them are going to die uh and yeah, you
0: just throw you a know, bunch of stuff at the wall and hope yeah, something right. sticks hope
1: something's going to hit right um and so like the vast majority of them in the wild die very quickly from disease or the elements or predation or whatever um so like there's just a whole lot of them where they just kind of die in a probably not great way real fast and you know like what what do we make of that um and then uh yeah there's this question about the odysseys so you know a lot of the odysseys are like specifically designed to deal with human suffering um you know things about like character growth it's not immediately obvious like can an animal you know grow in character from their suffering or something like that um and where there are uh where there are attempts to extend some of these theodicies to non-human animals um well maybe they can or maybe you know animals they don't quite have the capacity for like morally virtuous action but they still have the capacity to display courage and you know concern for others that's sort you know maybe there's some sort of capacity for some sort of meritorious agency or something um you know it's just because insects and similar things like their social and psychological capacities are, um, so much less robust. It's harder to see exactly what sorts of goods could be brought out of, of their suffering, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's, it's, you wind up with this situation where like, if a lot of these things, uh, suffer then like, that's kind of like the, you know, that's like the median case of suffering maybe in the world is just you're some insect that gets eaten after like a day or something. Right. Like Reasons to death or starves. Um, and you know, and it's, it's quite, um, it's quite, it, you know, it's not as easy to like try to, not, not that cases of human suffering are easy to explain away, but there are special difficulties in explaining it. And so, right. Well, yeah, it would seem but, that
0: at least some kind of reply would be like, uh, well, because there's at least some reason to think that they don't suffer to the degree that we as humans do, that it's not really that bad of a problem. I mean, is it, yeah. is there some kind of merit in that kind of approach?
1: Yeah. So it's a little, so there are like two things that the person saying that might mean they might, they might mean like they have a, a lower moral status. So they're suffering like counts for less pound for pound. Um, or they might just mean that we, that like, they don't suffer nearly as much, you know, like their experiences are like maybe much less vivid than ours or something like that. Um, regarding the, the second point, I mean, are their experiences just much less vivid than ours? Um, one thing to say is, uh, even if that's right, it might not, it might not solve the problem. Um, so I, I suggest at one point, like, if you weigh it, if you weigh it at like 10,000 to one, you think their suffering is one 10,000th as intense as mine. Um, and I suggest one way to see whether that's intu- an intuitively plausible upper bound is to imagine like, would you rather be a human suffering for a minute or like a caterpillar starving to death for a, a week? Uh, Cause there are 10,000 minutes in a week about. Um, and, it, you know, it's not obvious that you should you should prefer the caterpillar in that case, I think, right? So I, I think it's it just intuitively like 10,000 to one. Yeah, maybe that's a plausible upper bound. Um, if you do that, then it, it would still wind up that like the amount of suffering was tens of thousands of times greater than the amount of human suffering. Um, even if you assume that they suffer in like equal, equal equal proportions to us, which is probably not true. And they were around for like way longer, right? Hundreds of millions of years uh, so like all oh, that too. Um, so like, even if you weighed it very, very slightly, just the sheer amount could still really add up in the aggregate. There are people who think, no, as a matter of value theory, like you can't aggregate in that way. So like a bunch of little harms can't outweigh one really big harm. And um, that there's there's a group, there's a family of arguments called spectrum arguments in philosophy. I, I give one of these in the paper. It's it's a little complicated to explain, but Basically, it turns out that if you say that, you wind up having to reject the claim that value is transitive, that like better than or worse than or transitive. Um, so you have to reject the claim that if A is worse than B and B is worse than C, then necessarily A is worse than C. Um, and that, yeah, and that that's very implausible to my view. And I think we can explain away why people would hold that intuition that you can't aggregate in terms of... Um, hmm known cognitive biases so things like scope and sensitivity um so you you there are are studies you ask people like how much would you pay to um save a hundred seagulls from an oil spill and people are like 25 dollars. and you ask them how much would you pay to save a hundred thousand seagulls from an oil spill and people are like 26 (laughs) dollars <laughs> you're once 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 it's like more seagulls than you can right. picture. It you just your intuitions don't respond to it anymore. You know, um and probably something like that I think is going on. Just when you're dealing with super huge numbers, you know. Yeah. Or uh, there, there's the old joke about this guy is listening to an astronomer, and the astronomer says the sun will burn out in five billion years, and everybody will die. And he runs screaming out of the room, the guy who hears this and his wife comes after him and is like, honey, what, what, why are you so upset? You know, that's not going to happen for 5 billion years. And the guy says, oh, thank God. I thought he said 5 million years. (laughs) Um, Of course, it it actually is a lot better for it to be 5 billion. Certainly. It's a thousand (laughs) times as long, but, uh, you know, it's a joke because like your intuitions don't, you know, like what, why would you have any different emotional reaction? You know, um, So yeah, I I think basically um, one thing to say is even if you do weight it very slightly, I think you still have to aggregate it in such a way that in principle, a large enough number could outweigh a single more serious instance. And there are just going to be so many that that's going to happen. Another thing is it's not totally obvious that you should weight them in this way. I mean, there are some people who have thought like, you know, if you think about the evolutionary function of consciousness or whatever, like maybe there wouldn't be much point in just giving like only, the, you know, the slightest little push and one day, you know, just like the, the faintest hint of consciousness, you know, maybe their, their physical pain is just feels the way that ours does, or maybe it even feels worse because they're not as smart and they need a stronger incentive to learn. Um some people have speculated about that. Um, Rethink Priorities has done uh, a, a, something called the Moral Weight Project that they're publishing right now. Uh, I'm not representing Rethink Priorities in, in my capacity in this interview, I should say. It's just that they've done stuff that's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, uh, and they, the, Bob Fisher, who's a philosopher, has has been running that. Um, and they wind up, you know, and they'll say, don't take this super literally or whatever, like not more than within... A few orders of magnitude or something but they they suggest i think that like the capacity for hedonic experience of black soldier flies might be like a couple hundredths of that of humans um and if that's right some people think that that's intuitively weird i don't know why people think that they can just intuit how much black soldier flies can feel but um you know if that's right then like it's not super slight, right? I mean, it's, you know, that's, if it's, you know, half a percent, a quarter of a percent of our experience or whatever, then like you, then once you realize there are so many of them, that really does add up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, And and so, yeah, one thing is, even if you give it a very slight weighting in the aggregate could still be really bad. Another thing is not obvious. You should give it a super, super slight weighting. Um, Hmm. And, um, oh yeah, the other thing, I mean, you might, you might say, okay, maybe they do suffer a substantial amount, but like, it just doesn't matter. Cause like, they don't have our, they're of like a lower moral status than us. Um, and, um, I mean, you know, the question then becomes, okay, so, you know, that will have to be explained by something having to do with like our greater intelligence or greater psychological capacities so, or, yeah. Um, the question becomes like, why, why does how bad your suffering is depend on how smart you are, you know, um, and, or whatever. And, uh, it, you know, the kind of the classic worry is that it's very hard to give an answer to that, that is principled and that doesn't have bad results. That doesn't imply that like some humans are much more morally important than others or something like that. Um, Shelley Kagan is the philosopher who's probably done the most work recently on that sort of hierarchical view. He has a book called counting animals more or less. Um, and he actually says like, yeah, there are moral differences between humans and moral status based on differences in psychological capacities and stuff. Um, I have one paper responding to him that's out and I have another one in, in progress that I'm going to publish. So I have a lot more to say. I've
0: about seen that. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, the, the one that I'm going to publish I think is actually, um, Yeah, it it has, I think, a a pretty serious problem. It shows, I think, a pretty serious problem for his view. But I shouldn't talk about it because it's it's not it's not (laughs) true. But um, anyway, I said a lot there, but that's sort of my my response to that that sort of yeah.
0: Um, So, you know, let's say that your suspicions about the uh, you know the so far testing of these insects, let's say that they're correct and that they do feel significant. Uh, moral pain such that, that this is something that makes the problem of evil significantly harder. Um, I guess as a theist, you know, how would you kind of approach this question? Like what to you, uh, would make sense of this? Um, are there, is there like a particular theodicy you'd, um, go toward?
1: Yeah. So I kind of, I think there's kind of like a broad distinction, um, between theodicies where like some theodicies are trying to alexander pope says uh you know every every partial evil is universal good whatever is is right right uh some theodicies are trying to show like for each evil how that serves some purpose in the grand design all that will make you love god more in the end that will cause you to grow in character or whatever um and then there's another approach that's been defended by people like, say, Peter Van Inwagen or William Hasker that says, no, that's not right. Like, st- the, the, the world is, is you know, pretty messed up. Uh, things sometimes just happen without rhyme or reason. And they're really bad. And, you know, it would be better had that thing not happened. And uh, the task of theodicy is to show not how, like, each individual evil serves this providential function, but just to show, like... How it is that god could be justified in letting the world as a whole get to this state and remain for some time in this state where things happen without rhyme or reason and they're just bad um and i i think even before we start considering this i'm i'm sympathetic to the second thing thinking like i mean it may be that some some evils do serve some purpose in the providence, but like lots don't um just among human beings i think and uh then when we think about the the insects is there some particular great good that's served by like each instance of you know an insect starving to death after a few days or no i don't think so um and so it i think pushes us in the direction of that sort of theodicy um we're gonna talk in the in a in a bit i think about what I previously called subsumption theodicies in one paper. It was not a very yeah. euphonious name. I should have called it something that sounded better, but um, <laughs> theodicies the that try to show how it might be that the current state of the world, including the things that seem like natural evils, actually somehow or other are the result of like creatures messing things up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of the direction that I'm inclined to go in is to think, Yeah, the world is kind of a a messed up place um, where things often happen without rhyme or reason and they're just bad. And the reason for that is some sort of, we might say, primordial catastrophe or something that has left the world in a very bad state that is maybe be allowed by God because of something having to do with free will and mutual responsibility and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it may be that um, I, I, there's another paper we're not going to talk about, but I, I wrote this paper called human dominion and wild animal suffering. Um, some philosophers, people like Jeff McMahon and some people in the, the effective altruist community and so forth, this, this is my shirt, effective altruism, um, have, have, argued that like maybe it will be possible maybe it's possible to a little extent now and maybe to a greater extent in the future for us to actually do something about wild animal suffering um to like intervene in nature to reduce it through gene drives through eliminating parasites through all sorts of stuff um I I'm I'm into that I don't think we're in a position to do so much right now given our current state of knowledge but Mm -hmm. um I guess my picture is one where, like, maybe maybe the state of the natural world is somehow the result of creaturely agency, and maybe someday we'll play some role in in setting it right. Um, and you still have the question about all the suffering that happened in the middle, and that was all very bad. And you need somehow. I mean, I'm I'm like an animal universalist, so I think that all of the all of the sentient beings will have some sort of afterlife, and somehow it has to be that. Uh, this this grand narrative in which we've sort of bungled our responsibility but then taken it back up and done done kind of a great work at the end somehow it has to be that that can you know that can be joined together in a way that's good for like the whole community including um including the the creatures that kind of got screwed over in, in the in the interim um, keith DeRose is writing a book about The free will defense of the problem of evil um and he's thinking about some ways that that might be i think he's not thinking about animal suffering so much but i think some of the stuff that he's he says might be things that i would want to appropriate so um maybe once that book comes out i'll be able to direct people to that but that's all very speculative that that could all be wrong it could be something else but um, that's sort of how I, I guess I, it, It's all very it's all very weird, I know. It's all very weird, that's how I'm thinking about
0: it. So another approach that you um, mention uh, with regard to like what a theist might say in response to uh, this increased um, well, the increased difficulty of the problem of evil that uh, the suffering of insects would bring to the table. Um, is a kind of like skeptical theism. And uh, so skeptical theism is this view, you know, about the epistemic chasm that exists between God and man and that we're not really in a position to, um, you know, the, the atheist wants to say that uh, that it seems clear that there are no reasons God might have that would justify um, the allowance of this suffering. Um, and so the theist, uh, the skeptical variety would say, well, no, we just are not in a position to do that. Um, we are hopeless with regard to making any kind of probability judgments about what God would or would not allow. Obviously, there's a lot of literature, especially lately. Um, what, What would you say about that response? Would you, are you kind of sympathetic to the skeptical theist view? Or is that something that you see as problematic?
1: Yeah, so I guess, I mean, there's like, there's skeptical theism, and there's skeptical theism, right? So, there's kind of like a a mild form of skeptical theism that just says like look you know um god uh knows a lot of stuff that we don't like i've been wrong before uh you know there are lots of things in philosophy that are confusing to me like so if we don't see some good reason like that's not totally dispositive right like i mean it's some evidence against theism but we should hold open the possibility that there's just something we don't get yet um and That, that, um, you know, that seems uh, plausible to me. And in fact, I have to say that about some things because I don't say that I know the reason for every evil that occurs. Um, And, you know, maybe that could be more plausible if we have some theodicies that do some work because you think, well, in some cases we can see the reason. Maybe there are these other harder cases or, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, The more radical form of skeptical theism that's been defended by people like um mike bergman actually says like no it's like not evidence at all because we have no good reason to think that the the considerations that we're aware of are in any way representative of uh the goods and evils that exist the reasons for action that exist um and so um you know it's 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 a much more robust it's not merely like well we can't with total confidence be worried because you know we could be missing something it's actually like we have no clue what's going on you know uh and it, the 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 fact that i don't see what god does that that's as probative as the fact that like i i see some sentence written in uh Thai and can't read it you know i mean i just, well, i wouldn't be able to read it anyway like what what what's this supposed to mean Um, so, um, that, that's, that view, I I think is way, way too strong. Um, and there are a number of worries with it. Um, one worry is, I mean, first of all, I just, I don't think it's right. Just like intuitively, I don't see what the good argument for that is, um, but then like there are also kind of bad implications possibly for one thing it would it would probably undermine a lot of natural theology because basically what it says is like theism just doesn't make any predictions um and if it doesn't make any predictions then it doesn't predict anything correctly either right like maybe you see fine tuning but then you think like well for all i know like a finely tuned universe is the last thing god would want to make you know i have no clue um so it would undermine a lot of arguments for theism. It might risk undermining our ability to just make ordinary moral choices. Like, you know, I see some kid drowning, but then I think like, well, you know, the, the moral reasons that I know of are not at all representative of the ones that exist. Maybe there's some super good reason why this kid needs to drown. Yeah, Another, the things I'm saying are all variations of this too much skepticism worry. Right. This leads to us being skeptical in domains where we shouldn't be. Um, uh, another variation of the too much skepticism worry is it, it might undermine our ability to trust divine revelation. So, like, even if you you know that God has revealed some proposition, but then you think, wait a minute, like for all I know, there's some super great reason for God to lie to me about that, or maybe God wasn't even talking to me; he was just speaking out. You know, the angels were just singing a song and. Uh, you know, they knew that I would hear it and think that, that, that they were expressing some proposition to me, but like, it was just for some totally other reason I don't know about, or, um, you know, you, you, you get, uh, you get all, all sorts of worries along those lines. So Hudson has a very good little novella called the grotesque in the garden that explores some of those worries. Um, and then you might even think that it just undermines like your, your basic ability to, um like trust your your like any any of your beliefs i mean you know i i think the cat is sitting in my lap right now but like for all i know maybe god has some reason to um you know cause me to just hallucinate that the cat is sitting in my lap uh so like it maybe now i just have a defeater for all of my beliefs about the external world all my you know and and so um yeah, I mean there there are a number Nevin Kleimanhage has a, a a good paper um about this, the name of which I forget, but people can probably find it if they Google. It. I'm not, I'm actually not sure if it's out right now, but uh, the the philosopher is Nevin Kleinenhage, um, who he and I went to grad school together and he does Bayesian Bayesian epistemology stuff, but he, he has a good paper about skeptical theism that maybe is still in progress. I don't know if it's out, but Uh, he and i talked about it a while back that that has some good too much skepticism uh criticism as well
0: the potential argument regarding like the no reason to think that god might not be lying to us or has morally sufficient reasons to do so Mm -hmm. i find that to be like such a powerful and it it seems like inescapable and like from my earliest acquaintance my my earliest um understanding of that would be like Wheelingberg's paper um and then like you were mentioning uh hud hudson's paper and then uh i think uh stephen law interacts with this a bit as well and i just find that to be is like such a i'm surprised to see like that kind of robust skeptical theism being even advocated anymore because of those worries like Maybe I'm missing something, but it seems really yeah. uh, damning in that I, way.
1: I, I think it ultimately comes down to like pretty deep differences in uh, like epistemological methodology. Um, people yeah. people who who don't think that those arguments work often have more foundational views in epistemology that explain why they they think that they don't work. And um, you know, I, I just reject those more foundational views. But yeah, I I, I think it's a very I think it's a very serious, a very serious worry.
0: So you've also written on the simulation argument uh, with respect to the problem of evil. Could you kind of introduce us to what the uh, simulation argument is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the the simu- and this is going to get back into these questions about subsumption theodicy. So I'll try to explain some of the stuff that I said a minute ago, maybe in a when we talk about specific, more specific things. But uh, the the simulation hypothesis. This is something that um, Initially comes from a, a paper by Nick Bostrom. Uh, Bostrom suggests, um, think about this: like, <clears throat> so consider some civilization. Suppose, like, future future human beings um, become as technologically advanced as you can get. About more or less, right? Consistent with the known laws of physics. Um, It seems like if they were psychologically like us, they might have interest in running really, really detailed computer simulations, say of their ancestors, you know, oh, let's run a simulation of people living in some comparatively primitive society. To see what would have happened if, uh, you know, what if Donald Trump had been elected president? Like that would have been wild. Let's let's do some simulations, <laughs> to see, see how history would have played out in that case. Or,
0: oh shit, I'm convinced. Um, <laughs> you
1: know, uh, or you know, maybe just for entertainment, maybe it's like an MMO where you have a bunch of NPCs and you can go in. You know, there might be all sorts of reasons people would be interested in doing this. Right? Um, he says, and like if you do some basic calculations on like how powerful it's possible to make a computer given a certain amount of mass and whatever. Uh, if this is some interstellar civilization with arbitrarily powerful technology, then it actually would be super easy for them to make just like zillions of simulations of different things. Um, and so it looks like if, if you know some civilization reaches that point, and if they would have interest in making simulations like this, and if sufficiently well-simulated beings would be conscious, you know, like a, 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 a sufficiently detailed AI would be conscious, um, then it looks like the vast majority of people who think that they're in you know, some crappy old-timey civilization like us, the vast majority of observers, actually would be simulated observers right they would be in some ancestor simulation this future simulation this future civilization was running rather than being in base level reality right and so bostrom thinks um you should think either uh you know nobody ever reaches that technological stage or you should think if anybody ever does they're just they're going to be so so psychologically different by that point that they're going to have other stuff going on they're not going to do this or you should think sufficiently detailed simulations wouldn't be conscious i actually think that's that's probably not true Uh, even though i'm a a dualist i I still think like the ai person would be conscious if it was done the right way um or you should think oh like i'm probably in in a simulation because probably most people who think that they're in my environment are in a simulation right um and he doesn't think you should think oh so i am in a simulation but he thinks like well you know you should assign some probability to each of those probably it's, it's hard to say exactly which of those is right and so you should think there's some probability that you're in uh, a simulation um and that's the well that's that's the, the the simulation hypothesis is the hypothesis that we live in a simulation rather than base level reality and why would anybody think that that's the argument that he gives for thinking that it's like a realistic possibility um i don't think that we live in a simulation i think it's pretty it's pretty unlikely that, that that we live in a simulation but you know, it's not like uh, it's not like so unlikely that you shouldn't even take the possibility seriously because there is this non non insane line of argumentation for it. Right. Um, so that's that's the that's what the the, the simulation hypothesis and So if you were to take that hypothesis and
0: mm-hmm. you were to move it into philosophy of religion um, and you kind of explore. Uh, what that would have to say about the uh, problem of evil you kind of come up with a, a new interesting theodicy um you call it a um, what you mentioned earlier the subsumation or the subsumption theodicy or it's one of two forms of that
1: one of three the the thought i actually so i came up with this independently i wasn't the first person to come up with it though i, I think the first person to come up with it was Barry dayton There's a little section in a paper where he he mentions this possibility. Um, And I came up with this independently, having heard Elon Musk talking about the simulation hypothesis. I read some article and I was was thinking about this. Um, So I came up with this independently and and wrote the paper and thought and then like kind of put it aside because I thought like, you know, this is a weird idea. I'll work on it more later. Like there's no way I'm going to get scooped. Right, This is such a niche topic. It's not like somebody else is going to write that. And then Barry Dayton published a whole paper about it. So he beat me to the punch. So I did get scooped. But then I went back and changed the paper I had written to be kind of a response to him. Um, So uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, he he and I and um, David Kyle Johnson and maybe one other person have all have all written on this in various ways. But um, yeah, so uh, a subsumption theodicy, The reason that i gave it this this not very catchy name my my thought was what it does is subsume natural evils under the category of moral evils so it's a theodicy that says that um like all the you know earthquakes and disease and the insects starving to death and all that kind of stuff um all of those actually you know they seem like natural evils they seem like things that are purely purely natural but actually somehow or other they're they're the result of Creatures abusing free will, doing doing evil deeds uh, in ways for which they're morally responsible. Um, traditionally, views like that have actually been very popular among Christians and among a lot of other people. Um, so uh, one form of subsumption theodicy is the fall theodicy, uh, which says natural evil results from Adam and Eve, you know, or... Or some you know some sort of primordial fall, right? Uh, whether that's literally what happened in Genesis, or that's uh, uh, you know some sort of metaphor for something else. Somehow or other, like humans have messed things up, right? Uh, another view is um, what I call the diabolical theodicy, which is oh, natural evils somehow are the result of demons. So um, C.S. Lewis floats this. Um, saint paul in the bible he you know he has kind of various that you know sin and death and so on are kind of like personified for him in a a way that i think is probably like actually metaphysical he thinks there are actually archons that run the universe that are kind of uh you know either incompetent or malicious intelligences Uh, right so like he might be sympathetic to some of the stuff um and then uh, so like maybe it's because of humans, maybe it's because of demons. Uh, if we're in a simulation, oh, well, it's because of the simulators, right? Um, they, they're they the ones who who made the simulation so crappy, you know, they could have made like a really good one. Instead, they decided they wanted to know what would happen if Donald Trump got elected. Um, and so uh, uh, you, you have at least the natural evils around us will be the result of, of their agency, not the direct result of of God setting things up in this way. Um, now, of course, you might wonder. Well, wait a minute. What about their reality? You know, um, well, you know, it could be different. Maybe they don't have natural evils in their reality, or maybe there's some really clear way in which, like, uh, no, like in their reality, the the literal Garden of Eden story is is actually how things went, or you know, something right. Um, so, you know, it, it, could be that they don't have apparently natural evils, or maybe there's some more obvious subsumption theodicy available for them or something. Um, and then it could be, okay, it turns out that natural evils as a class turn out to be, or maybe their natural evils are like easier to explain in some other way. You know, uh, it really does always lead to character growth, you know, who knows? Um, so it, it could be that, uh, you know, I mean, the natural evils we know about, would be the result of actually creaturely moral agency it could be that that's all the ones there are or that the other ones are also in some other way the result of creaturely moral agency or are more easily explained in some other way um, so that would be the uh, a form of subsumption theodicy saying yeah this bad stuff is because of these uh you know these nerds who made made this reality we see around
0: some Thomists respond to the problem of evil of suffering uh by appealing to the idea that um, that one, God is not a moral agent and thus has no actual obligations to his creatures in any kind of ordinary sense. Um, and then two, that evil is a privation of, um, or is parasitic on the good. Um, and so God, or, and so there's not something that can be used to kind of disconfirm God. Um, mm. Could you outline like your perspectives on that kind of view? Um, do you think this is a kind of, I mean, do you think this is like a, a promising approach or um doesn't seem to be something that you necessarily embrace but uh, i guess i'm wondering your thoughts on that
1: no i don't think it's a promising approach i mean i i think um i think that first of all that i mean that relies on kind of a really strong doctrine of divine simplicity basically that makes god's right God's agency is, is only analogous to ours. It's not real. It's not what you ordinarily would think of as agency or, you know, God's goodness is not what you ordinarily would think of as goodness and that sort of stuff. Um, I just don't accept any of that. Um, and I actually kind of think it, it winds up, I don't know. Classical theists sometimes will say like, you know, people who believe in theistic personalism, the other model of God, uh, they like don't even believe in God. They just believe in Zeus or something. You know, like, like God as conceived by Richard <laughs> Swinburne or whatever is just some super powerful human. Who's but, yeah. um, I kind of feel that that way about their view. It, it seems to me like what they really believe in is some sort of impersonal absolute or something, and then yeah they they realize they're supposed to say all this stuff about God loving you and knowing that you exist and that kind and of the, thing. The God like, of Pythagoras
0: or something. Yeah. That you know, yeah,
1: um, And and so th- you get these kind of convoluted explanations of, of how it is that God, uh, you know, cares about you and that kind of thing and, and acts and has freedom and this sort of stuff, even though, it looks like the basic model is not compatible with that stuff. Um, Of course, you know, I'm saying stuff about a very big debate, just very briefly expressing my Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't go in for any of that. Um, one concern of course, is if you, if you say God's not a moral agent and so you don't, um, like the evil doesn't count against him, you get into kind of a similar worry as you had with skeptical theism, like, wait a minute, does this view make any predictions? like is i mean is god can we say anything about what god would or wouldn't do like if we can then why why doesn't the problem of evil count if we can't then like yeah you know um of course they'll they'll say well you can still show that god exists because often they think you have like basically deductive proofs that don't rely on claims about what god would or wouldn't do but just the fact that there are contingent things or something like that but um yeah i'm not i'm not sympathetic to that move um the thing about privation i guess um you know sometimes they'll say the thing about privation specifically in response to they often accept some sort of causal principle where like the the effect has to be somehow contained within the cause and so the worry is like if there's evil in the world does that mean that there's evil in god and they say no because evil's not like a real thing it's merely a privation um and right, right. you know i guess i don't accept the view that evil is only a privation um it seems i mean you have to have a, a very specific view of like the convertibility of being and goodness and that kind of thing to, to get that um but you know uh is it can it do anything more i mean any anything more than just block this worry about the causal principle and doesn't imply that there's evil in god Uh, i don't think it could do anything more than that even if we accept it i mean you know if you build a car without an engine like the lack of an engine is a privation i guess but it's not like the lack of an engine therefore can't count against you being a perfect car designer (laughs)
0: This part 1 of my interview with Dr. Dustin Crummett. You can find more at his website, dustincrummit.com, as well as his YouTube channel, which features several fascinating interviews as well as informative lectures. If you appreciate the content and tone of what real theology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon to which you can make a small recurring donation per episode in support of the show. Music is from the Chicago-based band Casserole. We would also like to thank our patrons. Aiden Armstrong, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samaro Rira, Kim Bushkowski, Anthony Lawson, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Brandon McCleary.